0: Well hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. Good morning. I have a question for you. How many of you have ever seen, and this isn't a trick question, okay, so don't be worried, but how many of you have ever seen counterfeit money? Anybody? A lot of people. Most, most people in here. I'll uh, tell you a little story. I used to work in uh, retail, for those of you who don't know, and uh, I was a manager of a particular cell phone store here in town for a time, and we hired this young girl because she was really, really nice, and we were desperate for help, but she didn't have any experience. She's never worked in a, a, in a retail setting or with people, uh, much less selling cell phones or handling money. I got a phone call one day. She was in tears. She was sad. She was heartbroken because she had accepted a large sum of counterfeit money. See, we trained the retail employees to be able to spot counterfeit by marking it with the currency marker. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. You mark the 20s and above, right? Some places it's 50s and above. Well, this particular criminal was brilliant and paid in fives and tens. So, we're naturally, we're not going to mark those bills because we had especially this young, inexperienced woman. She, was just not, she wasn't really prepared to find current, uh, counterfeit currency. So she didn't. She accepted the money, and this was several hundred dollars, and the bank found out about it because we actually turned in the money with the deposit. So it was a really, really big mess. And much in the same way that she was untrained in spotting counterfeit currency, There are many people in our churches today who are untrained in in spotting a counterfeit Christ. We don't know how to spot a false gospel. We don't know how to spot whenever somebody's telling something that's not true regarding salvation or the person of Christ. So how do you train in that? How do you figure that out? How, How can you prepare yourself for that? How can you prepare yourself to spot Counterfeit currency. It's with that question in mind that we're going to resume our study of Christ is all in the book of Colossians. where You already know where we are. We're in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 15 through 18 this morning. Let's stand as we read the Word of God. The book of Colossians, it's chapter 1, verse 15 through 18. This is what the Word of God says. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you this morning with Bibles open and and hearts humbled, hoping to hear from you this morning, longing, needing, yearning to hear a word from you this morning, Lord. I have no wisdom of my own to offer to anyone this morning, Father, so I pray that you would, that I would step out of the way, and I would be nothing more than just a vessel through which you communicate the truth of your word from your scriptures, God. May only the truth be spoken today and everything else be forgotten, And may the word of the Lord stand forever and reign supreme in this place. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So this morning we're going to be speaking of the supremacy of Christ. Now to go back to our question, how how can you spot counterfeit currency? Well, federal agents train to spot a counterfeit by studying authentic pieces of currency. Imagine that. They don't get a bunch of fakes and look at the fake. They study the real thing. They study authentic pieces of currency. They learn how to tilt the the currency so that they can find the hologram ink and see what the hologram is. And they, they learn how to hold it up to the light so that they can see the images that are in the authentic dollar bill or $20 bill or $100 bill or whatever denomination it is. They train tirelessly on the real thing, on the authentic currency. Why? Because then you can spot a fake from a mile away. Paul employs the similar tactic here in Colossians. We've already studied and understood that the purpose of Paul writing this epistle to the church in Colossae was to refute false teaching that was infiltrating the church. People were preaching a counterfeit Christ. So, Paul begins to train them on how to spot a counterfeit Christ. How? By teaching them about the authentic Christ. In order to know what a lie is, we need to know what the truth is. If we're not trained to spot a fake, we're liable to fall for a fake. But Paul is doing this teaching them how to spot the fake one by teaching them about the the authentic one so that when anyone tries to delude them with plausible arguments, they can stand up and say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not Jesus. That's not true. What you are saying about God is not true. This is what the scriptures say about Christ. Much in the same way we call to mind the, the popular phrase, give a man to fish, No one's heard this before. That's amazing. It goes like this. You give a man to fi- a fish and you feed him for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime in the same way Paul doesn't want them just to know how to refute this particular brand of false teaching that's coming in. He wants them to know how to avoid any kind of false god or false gospel or false idea or false philosophy that they may praise and worship and serve the one true God who is Christ. What you believe about Christ matters. What we teach about Christ matters. The answer, the way that you answer the question, who is Christ, has eternal implications for you. So brothers and sisters, let's take care this morning to learn about Christ. So let's deal with our text. If you remember from last week, we looked at verses 13 and 14, right? Paul was writing of the incredible truth of the forgiveness of our sins. And it's funny because he's talking about the forgiveness of our sins and then almost out of nowhere just goes into this rant about how incredible Jesus is. If you read it all through, just all in context, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's just a, uh, oh, look, squirrel. Let's chase this squirrel. But this is a good squirrel to chase, right? Because we want to know about Christ. We want to worship Christ. Christ. Scholars actually believe that this section of verses, uh, more specifically sections 15 through 20, they believe that this might have actually been an early church hymn that the early church sang. How cool is that? Whether or not they did sing this song in their worship services or not, these verses certainly should lead us to worship. So as we dive into this passage, let us pay careful attention to what is being said about Christ. And I can't stress this enough this morning, that what we believe about Christ matters. We cannot be wrong about Jesus and then be right about anything else. Paul opens up this section by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's verse 15 He is the image of the invisible God. What in the world does that mean? How can you be an imprint of something you cannot see? I mean, how is that possible? What does this mean? Moreover, I thought that Genesis 1 says that mankind was made in the image of God. You're familiar with this, yes? That We are made in the image of God. It's the imago Dei. The word being translated here, though, as image, is actually the Greek word for icon. Its meaning is referring to a portrait or an exact imprint, an exact, precise stamp. So what Paul is saying is that Christ is the exact portrait, the precise imprint of the nature of God. That's why Jesus can say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, from John 14. Mankind was made in the image of God in the sense that we have personhood. We have a mind, we have a will, we have emotions. Yet Christ is the image of God. Think of it like this. Jesus is the exact representation of God that you and I were supposed to be but we absolutely fail at. He is exactly the nature of God. And from this, we see our first point from this text that Christ is supreme in his divinity. He is supreme because he is God. For some of you, this seems like a no-brainer, right? Like, yes, I know Jesus Christ is God. Big whoop. But this is very important that we hold fast to this truth because there are many cults out there, and yes, I said cults out there, that go and tell people that Christ is not the Son of God or that Christ is not actually God. That's the the group, the Mormons, you've heard of Mormonism, you've heard of the Jehovah's Witnesses, These groups do not believe in the divinity of Christ. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. But to cut yourself off from that truth is to cut yourself off from salvation. Because only God saves. Not man. Not your good works. Not anything else. Only God saves. Allow me to reiterate yet again. That you cannot get Christ wrong and be right about anything else. For us to understand the work of Christ, we have to understand the person of Christ. In order for us to understand the importance and the implications of what it is that Jesus did on the cross, we have to know who he is. Because if he was just a regular man going up to the cross, then big whoop. Somebody died one time on the cross. That's terrible for them. It must have been painful. But it matters because he is God. God died on the cross. That is of eternal importance, and we must grasp this. This is further explained by section B of verse 15, where he says the firstborn, or I'm sorry, of the invisible God. He's further explaining and showing us that he is the image of the invisible God. He is God. He's the imprint of God. For those of you who don't know, on Wednesday nights we're doing a study of the attributes of God. If you didn't know or if you haven't been attending, I really encourage you to come. I uh, might be speaking for myself, but I think that these studies have been very um, helpful in our understanding of who God is and what he's like. But this past Wednesday, we discussed that God is spirit. We were looking at John 4.24, where Jesus said that God is spirit. So we gained an understanding that to be spirit means to be invisible, that he has never been seen, and he cannot be seen now. However, in the person of Jesus Christ, the the person who walked on the earth, named Jesus Christ, God chose to manifest himself that he might accomplish his work of salvation. In doing so, Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, as is spoken in Hebrews 1. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God because he is God. I'm stressing this because we cannot get this wrong. We have to know that Jesus is God. Jesus is not one of many gods to choose from in the buffet line of gods to serve. He's not just the first choice. He's not just one of many roads. He's not one way to get to God. He's not a nice person or a moral teacher. Jesus Christ is God. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. Many tried to discredit Christ as just a good teacher. He was just a really moral person. He was just a prophet. Some go even further to say that Jesus is just the inside of what's already in you. That all of us have a Christ inside of us, and we just need to get in touch with our inner Christ. Folks, that's a bold faced lie. We do not have Christ inside of us unless we have been reborn again by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. Others discredit Jesus by saying, by attacking his work on the cross. In saying that his sacrifice was not sufficient. That you need more. You need to add to his sacrifice good works. And if you don't have good works, you don't have salvation. But that is not true either. Jesus Christ's work on the cross was perfect. It needs nothing. You need not add one thing to his work aside from just putting your faith in him and that's it. You're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ, alone. That's it. Jesus Christ is God. And Paul is showing the church at Colossae that there are no other gods, there are no other options, there is no other exit strategy, there is no plan B, but Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh. The backside of verse 15 says that he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is not to be misunderstood to mean that Jesus Christ was created. You know John 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's in reference to Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning. He was before the beginning. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, we have to deal with this term, though. It says firstborn. And in our minds, our natural way of thinking is that means that he was born first, right? That means that he was the first child in the family. But really, this term means that he is preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power and preeminent in honor. In Jewish culture, the firstborn was the rightful heir to the father's inheritance. Or for kings, the firstborn child, the firstborn son was the rightful heir to the throne. Here's... Away, here's uh, some other verses that explain that firstborn is a position. It's, it's not talking about a chronological birth order. It is a position. And in Exodus 4, God calls Israel his firstborn son. The nation, Israel, his firstborn son. In Psalm 89, God says of King David that he will make David the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus holds that high honor of firstborn. He is preeminent in dignity. He is preeminent in power. He is supreme over all creation as he holds the position of the firstborn. It is this high honor. It is the highest honor that you can have. Verse 16. Let's look at it. It says, For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth. This shows us that Christ is supreme in creation. But notice the explanation that here, here that Paul gives. He says that he is the first, he created all things. All things were created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Paul is further explaining and specifying that when Paul when he was writing all things he means all things in heaven and on the earth things that you can see and things that you cannot see thrones dominions rulers or authorities everything was created by him this means angels The hierarchy of angels, governments, politicians, storms, moons, stars, galaxies, birds, insects, oceans, deserts, humans, all things were created by him. If you looked at the tag on anything in creation, it wouldn't say made in China or hecho in Mexico. It would say made by Jesus. Everything on this earth Everything in heaven, everything you can see, everything you've never thought of or dreamt of, it is all created by him. Now let's deal with these words here. We, we see that heaven and earth, we see things on the hev- in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That's easy enough to understand, but let's look at the four words here, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. This is where we're going to kind of get some light shed on what false teaching was going around in the church at Colossae at the time. You see, it's widely believed that the the heresy that was being taught is that Jesus was just an angel. And Jesus was one of many gods and many gods were on par with who Jesus was. So what Paul is showing to the church at Colossae is no, he created those things. He can't be even with something that he made. He can't be equal to something that he created. He is above those thrones, the rulers, the authorities, the powers. Now, how does that apply to us today? He is above the spiritual realm, the spiritual world. I don't know what it is about Hispanic culture, but there's a lot of superstition. All of it is bogus. God is creator of all things, and he owns every last thing in this creation. He owns it all. It's his. That means New Age mysticism, astrology, tarot cards, Wicca, seances, Ouija boards. All of these practices are pitifully inadequate to compare to the supremacy of Christ. All of it. Not one thing that you can think of fails to be under his dominion and control. Nothing. But this can also apply for us today. This, this year is a voting year. It's an election year. And a lot of people tend to get nervous, and a lot of people tend to get scared. And I'm not here to make this a political conversation aside from to tell you that Jesus Christ owns the politicians. That Jesus Christ owns the Supreme Court. He owns the government of the United States. He owns Al-Qaeda. He owns the Soviet Union. He owns China. He owns South and North Korea. All of it is his. Every last thing was created by him. But that's not all. Paul goes even further to show that not only were all things created through him, but also for him. We see that after rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is the goal of creation. All of creation is for the Son of God. Earlier, I referred to mankind being made in the image of God, and that's from Genesis One, and let me read this to you. He says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Here he was showing that he's going to make mankind in his image in the sense that he's giving mankind power and dominion. He Put us in control of what already belonged to him. But what we're learning here in Colossians, in that, in the understanding of all things were created through him and for him, is that God created through Jesus everything and gave it as a gift to his son. Everything was made for Jesus Christ. If you haven't begun to notice yet, this text is putting Christ at the very highest possible position that you can imagine. He is the firstborn, as though an heir to the throne. Everything was created for him everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, everything was created for the Son. Psalm 2:8 says it this way: God is talking to Jesus, and He says, "Ask of me, and I will make the nations, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." So we see everything is His. Guess what? That means your life. That means everything in it. That means your body, your mind, your heart, your fingers, your knees, your thoughts, your motivations, your intentions. Everything is his. It belongs to him as he created it all. It belongs to him as he is the ruler of it all. And it belongs to him as he is supreme over it all. Now, if you'll think with me, this has far-reaching implications in our day-to-day lives. As we begin to understand that our lives are not our own, Our money is not our own. Our homes are not our own. Our vehicles are not our own. Our jobs, our possessions, our well-kept lawns, our aspirations, our careers, our children, nothing is ours. It's all his. And if you have been blessed with anything, it's Jesus Christ Allowing you to be a steward of what is his. Everything belongs to him. He holds the pink slip for every last aspect of our lives. Think about that. What are you doing with what he has given you? What are you doing with the time he has given you? The life he has given you? The talents, the gifts, the abilities. What are you doing with it? Is it being squandered away? Are you you wasting it? Are you not using it? Are you using it for something else? Or have you willfully submitted it to the control of Almighty God? Grasping this will cause us to understand that service to the Lord is our natural reaction because it belongs to Him anyway. Even those who are disobedient to Him Even those who want nothing to do with Jesus, even those who are living in wickedness, even they are for the Son. He rules over it all with a mighty scepter and he decrees all that transpires. Nothing happens without his consent. Not a single dust particle floats through the air without his consent. Not a single proton or neutron moves without his consent. No ship has been sunk. No plane shot out of the sky. No bird has fallen from the tree. No pollen has ever been carried by the wind without the permission of Jesus Christ. He is ruler of it all. He controls it all. The point that's being made here is everything. Even the things that make us uncomfortable. Everything. That word in the Greek means everything. Everything is his. Verse 17. Not only is it his... He holds it all together. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. It is because of this truth that all things are for Him and created by Him that it makes this even more true that in Him all things hold together. He's not only the life giver, He's the life sustainer. He created it and He keeps it going. We look around our world and we see sinfulness everywhere. We see tragedy. We see a government and a culture that is degrading at a rapid pace. We see turmoil. We see all kinds of pain and hurt and suffering. We see good things happening, blessings. We see people getting married, children being born. And everything is under the control of the graceful hand of God restraining everything. What that means is if not for the restraining hand of Almighty God, the things would be worse than they are. Think about that. As bad as things have gotten, if not for Jesus holding these things back and saying, this is as far as you can go, imagine how much worse it would be But even Satan himself is on a leash. Even Satan himself has to ask permission to do anything. We've learned that. We learned that in Job. And we learned that in Luke. Whenever Satan came and asked Jesus to sift all of the disciples' lives. The restraining hand of God. In him, all things hold together. If not for Jesus, the stars would fall out of the sky. The oceans would evaporate into space. The sun would come hurling into the earth. Life itself would cease. That's how powerful this God is. Folks, we're not dealing with just an anything kind of God. We're not dealing with just a, a Sunday morning Kind of religion here. This is Almighty God. That's what's being taught in this text is that He is so powerful and so in control that we can barely even grasp a fraction of it. The right response is to stand in awe and worship Him. He holds all things together because He created it all. And he never breaks a sweat. He keeps planets in motion, the sun rising every day on the evil and the righteous. He gives food to those who refuse to know him, refuse to serve him. He gives them breath and life and money and food and clothing. He sustains it all. But that's not all. Verse 18 He's also the head of the body, the church. The last point that Paul makes before he transitions to speaking of the work of Christ is that Jesus is supreme over the church. That means the church at Colossae belonged to Christ. The church in Rome belonged to Christ. The churches all throughout the Lycus Valley, in Thyatira, in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Philippi, in Laodicea. Churches right now in New York, in Zimbabwe, in Colombia, in Brazil. And yes, even this church right here in Wolfworth, Texas, all belong to Christ. All of it is his. We here at New Life Baptist Church are but a small fraction of the member, the body of Christ at large, both across the globe and across time. Think about that. You're a part of the body of Christ all throughout history. That means Paul. That means the reformers. That means Jonathan Edwards. All of these people are part of the same body of Christ as you in little old Wolforth, Texas. That's humbling. What a privilege we have. Paul is displaying for the Colossians that their church belongs to Jesus. So they need not concern themselves with the voices of outsiders who are selling them bogus lies, trying to convince them about a different gospel. They don't have to listen to that. It's not their church. It's not their gospel. It's not their Jesus. They don't get a say in the matter. It's not their church. And in the same way today, for every church that wants to bear the name of Christ, we don't get to set the rules. We don't get to set the purpose or even the mission of the church because it belongs to Jesus. It's his. It's his body. And what he says goes. New Life Baptist Church will be a biblical church because this church belongs to Jesus. It's not ours. It's not mine. I've been put here as the under-shepherd, but Jesus Christ is the high priest. Jesus Christ is the mediator. He is the Lord, and all of this is his. So in light of that fact, why are so many churches today unhealthy? It's because so many churches refuse to operate in accordance with that truth. Whenever we begin to drift away from the truth of the lordship and the supremacy of Christ, we open ourselves up to all kinds of lies and deceit. Listen. It might be fantastic people, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and and other churches that are teaching wrong things. Might be great, fantastic, nice people, great cooks, law-abiding citizens. But to get Jesus Christ wrong is to make a fatal mistake. We can't get this wrong. We cannot be wrong about Jesus. Jesus. In order to know his work, we have to know who he is. Lord, help us to keep from straying. May the Lord help us to keep from drifting away, because in him all things hold together. And the last thing that he says here is he's the beginning the firstborn from the dead. So he's just further reiterating that there's not a single area that you could possibly think of where Christ is not supreme. We are promised in the resurrection, we are promised glorified bodies on the return of the Lord. Whenever he comes back, that we will be resurrected and we will be given glorified bodies. And guess what? Even on that day, Jesus Christ will reign supreme. There is not a square inch, a tiny part of this universe, whether we can see it or not, where he is not absolutely supreme. He is Lord over creation, the church, and you as an individual. Why? That in all things, he might be preeminent. All things. Everything. When it says all things, it means... All things. So, do you want to spot a counterfeit Christ? It's a Christ who is not preeminent. It's a Christ who is highly respected and very well regarded, but not supreme over it all. It's a Christ who will tell you that as long as you go to church, you're fine. As long as you're a nice person, you're good, don't worry. As long as you have some form of variation of the truth, then guess what, you're good. Just say my name a couple of times. But the authentic Christ is Lord. He is supreme. And nothing is even a close second, third, fourth, or one thousandth. So the question this morning is, do you know Christ? Do you know this supreme Christ. We love to say in the evangelical church that you just need to make uh, Jesus Lord of your life. And I understand that we mean well, but that's not a good statement. Why? Because Jesus already is the Lord of your life. You're either living in willful submission to that fact, or you're living in willful rebellion to that truth. But either way, there is coming a day where everyone, whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities, everyone and everything will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But because of the grace of God, you have an opportunity to do that today. Every day that you wake up and every day that he graces you with life and he graces you with sunshine is another day that you have an opportunity opportunity to willfully submit to his lordship. But make no mistake, there is coming a day where you will not have the choice. But to be a Christian is to say yes and amen to the reality of his lordship to turn from the things Jesus hates, and to put total faith in him. If you've never done that before, if you've never put your faith in Christ so as to be born again, I implore you to be reconciled to Christ today. Abandon all hope in your sin. Abandon all hope in anything else in, in religious works, in, in being a nice person, in morality. Abandon all hope and everything else and put all your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do, he will make you a new person. Why? Because he has that power. How? Because he has that power. He's Lord. He is supreme. Let's stand. Let us take great comfort this morning, if you are in Christ, that you don't serve a puny God. You don't serve a small God. You don't serve a God sitting on a shelf somewhere. You don't serve a God that's sitting in a tomb or in a grave you serve almighty, preeminent, supreme Jesus Christ. Take great comfort in that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, humbled at the sight of your total control, your total lordship, your total supremacy. Lord, and I know that even in our small understanding and grasp of this truth, it is but the outer skirts, it is but the hem of your robe. We won't even begin to scratch the surface of all that you are in this lifetime. But God, I ask that as we go from this place that you will increase our knowledge of you. God, that you will help us to see you Help us to worship you in the beauty of your supremacy. Help us to live in a manner that that displays for the world and says for us without us having to speak that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our turmoil and in our tragedy to understand that you're in control of it all and that everything belongs to you. In that regard, Lord, help us to be better stewards of all that you've given us, whether it be our time or our finances or our thought life or our motivations or intentions. Help us to understand that all of this is yours and it belongs to you and it's for you and live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. May the supreme Christ be glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen. So those of you who are a member, we encourage you to step back to the back for our business meeting. And otherwise, grace and peace and mercy with you all.